Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as we study together. We're going to be in verses 7 through the end of the chapter with the title of our study being, But Now I See. And just as a side note, we're going to, we're going to go deep this morning, so let me joyfully and enthusiastically encourage everyone to bring a Bible on these Sunday mornings. Even though we have the text up on screen there, having a copy open in front of you enables you to study with me, to study with me as we work our way through the text. And sure, some of you are taking care of little ones, and there are others who maybe can't read the small text, etc. But for most of us who attend here on a regular basis, there are real benefits to having the word open in front of us. I may have a, ver- a verse on screen, but it may jog a thought or prompt a question on a different verse in the chapter. You may want to cross-reference something. I chuckled a few weeks ago when Matt came up to me after the service, and he said, you were reading verse such and such. And, and I opened Gil's commentary real quick, and I stopped to myself, and I thought to myself, yes, that's the spirit. You can bring a laptop, a tablet, whatever. You can bring a stack of commentaries if you want. God's Word is worth getting serious about. You hear my heart in this. So let's, let's do our, our best to bring our glove to the ball game if we plan on playing with the team. Amen? God's Word is worth it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's get a running start into today's text. By starting our reading of verse 4, Paul said, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And Paul is now going to elaborate on the letter versus the Spirit. Notice the back and forth A versus B comparison he uses as we go forward here. Verse 7, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory... Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. These are the words of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We love your word. We want to love it more. We recognize that the words of eternal life lie in these pages. The words of truth. The guidance we need for our lives. For our joys and for our trials. And so this morning, again, we look to you and we ask God that you would open our eyes to spiritual truth. Help us know you. Help us to know how we ought to live in a way that glorifies you and points others to you in a way that worships you all through the week. Thank you for what you're about to do, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is a deep text that we have just read, no doubt. I'll admit, when I first began studying, I felt more like a man lost in the jungle. I knew what jungle I was in, but I had to find my way around. It was an adventure for sure, and I trust that our study today will provide some spiritual direction for you, as it has for me in the past two weeks. Big picture. We see here Paul continuing the confidence theme that he had back in the first part of this chapter. He said in verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Confident servants of the new covenant. The covenant of the Spirit versus the old law. And as Paul, Paul begins to elaborate here, he begins to elaborate on the support for his confidence by teaching the difference between the new covenant that he was preaching and the old law, the Mosaic law, that the Jews were accustomed to following. Verse 7, he says, But if the ministry of death, in letters engraved on stones, speaking of the Ten Commandments, came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory. Paul is giving us a comparison here by way of contrast of the law of the Old Testament and the grace of the New Testament. We're looking at what he calls two ministries. There are two workings. There are two purposes here. We have the purpose of the law and the Ten Commandments, all the law of God, which was to set the standard of holy living for humanity and we have the purpose of the new covenant, which is the ministry of salvation through the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who believe and repent, those who believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And as many theologians have pointed out, the law convicts of sin while grace enables us to overcome sin. The law condemns us to the penalty of sin, but the Spirit frees us. And Paul is going to contrast these two. To appreciate what he's saying, we have to step back and, and again see the big picture. Why is Paul even bringing this up? It's because the gospel was being challenged by people in and out of the church. Not only was Paul being challenged, the gospel was being challenged. This message of the new Messiah, of faith and grace and salvation was being challenged. It was being questioned and doubted. 
It was being confused and it was mixed with other philosophies and religions. So 21st century question, is that happening today? Of course it is. Do you and I need to know how to boldly and authoritatively share Christ and the message of forgiveness and heaven and holiness and sin with others? And the answer is, of course we do. The gospel, as we saw a week or two ago, is increasingly being peddled and polluted. It is being minimized and mocked just like it was in the years and in the decades following the immediate resurrection of Jesus Christ. Satan wasted no time going after the gospel. And he is still going after the message of faith and repentance and forgiveness. John lent to me the, uh, a video that talked about what you all studied a couple weeks ago in Sunday school. The prosperity gospel the health and the wealth that God will give you if you only give more to Him. The gospel was and is being peddled. That's why we need to study this text. You and I need to know how to share Christianity accurately, lovingly, and boldly that's why we need to study this text. That's just one of the reasons. So without foundation of need and purpose, let's look carefully at the text. In verse 7, Paul gives us this detailed contrast between the law and the new covenant, and he is doing it to emphasize and to highlight the, the new covenant. He is exalting the new covenant that he claims is better, is much more glorious and he kicks off this contrast statement in verse 7 with this phrase, but if the ministry of death, it's very interesting that Paul keeps calling the old covenant the ministry of death, the letter that kills, as it says back in verse 6. You'll need your Bible to read that one. That's not on the screen. Um, the letter that kills. Can you imagine the impact that those words would have had on the Jews as he was speaking them to, to them? These people who knew nothing but the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law, the sacrifices, the priests, the temple, they knew nothing but that. Their faith was there in God. And Paul says that's the ministry that kills. If we were devout practicing Jews during Paul's time, we would have no difficulty grasping the context of what Paul was just saying. We would know full well what he was talking about. This might even come across to us as an, an attack on our religion, on our faith. These people understood Paul's question of comparison in verse 7. And for the many non-Jews that Paul was speaking to here in the church of Corinth, many non-Jews, this was an Old Testament lesson that they needed to learn. It's very important that Paul is giving this lesson to this church. This is a lesson that we absolutely must understand to appreciate and to be empowered by. Look at the definition Paul gives right here in verse 7 alone. He defines the Old Testament law several ways. 
a ministry of death, letters engraved on stones, glorious, overwhelming in the sense that the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses' face as he received the law and brought it down to them back off Mount Sinai. And he says it was fading. And he says, if all of that is true, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? How could the new ministry of the Spirit of God possibly be less glorious than that? Less amazing, less marvelous. And he's about to answer the question with several supporting factors. But before continuing his argument, notice, he immediately interjects the answer to the question. He tells them where he's going to go. Verse 9, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. We see there even further definition of contrast. We have condemnation versus righteousness. We're talking about sure judgment versus sure justification. And he continues the argument now in verse 10, further highlighting the value of the new covenant, the gospel, the message of salvation. Verse 10, for indeed what had glory, notice the past tense, Every listening, practicing Jew would have caught that in an instant. In an instant. Paul is minimizing, he is challenging their view of the Mosaic law. For indeed, what had glory, in this case has no glory, present tense, applicable to them, because of the glory that surpasses it. Here we see the measurement of one thing by the standard of another. Please tell me you've never seen this before. A little kid gets handed an ice cream cone. And judging by the look on his face, he just scored big time. But then the next kid in line, perhaps his older brother or sister, gets handed a measurably larger ice cream cone. What happens? Next thing you know, the expression on that child totally changes. He now hates his ice cream cone. He's demanding more. He screams, I don't want the little one. He throws it on the ground. He cries, throws of it. He demands the bigger one. He demands a more glorious one. Now, that's a very weak analogy. But it gets the point across that Paul was trying to communicate, and sadly, many of us relate better to the ice cream than we do the Mosaic Law. But to the Jew, this is the point. If you like what you had which in a sense has melted, then wait until you see what you can have. If the law was glorious in holiness, even as it condemned humanity, then how much more glorious is the new covenant even as Jesus saves us? If God was spectacular on Mount Sinai, just read the account in Exodus, the thunder, the lightning, the clouds, the fire. If he was spectacular then, when he gave us the Ten Commandments at a distance, lest he kill anyone that touched the mountain, even any animal, how much more spectacular to have the Spirit of God in us convicting, 
and enlightening and comforting and guiding and empowering us in divine wisdom for eternal and abundant life. If God was glorious in the tabernacle and the temple made with human hands out of fabric and stone, metal, how much more glorious the Spirit of God who chooses to reside in you and me because of what Christ has done in us. The glory of the prior is so surpassed by the glory of the better, the latter, that it is though the old has no glory at all. Verse 11, For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. The Holy Spirit is giving Paul incredible insights here. The law had what Paul calls a fading glory. It once was bright or great, but with time it grew more and more dim, weaker and weaker, smaller and smaller. We see this to be true in many aspects of the Mosaic law. In its effect, in its wonder, there is no lightning and thunder still happening over that mountain. There is no glory in that place. It faded. We see even, as, Mo, as Paul's going to talk about in a little bit, the glory that shone from Moses' face began fading almost right away. The law has what Paul calls a fading glory. And Paul's going to talk about that more in a minute, but first he gives the contrast of the gospel. Much more that which remains is in glory. There is the steadfastness of the gospel message. One is gone. The other remains. This must have, again, caused such angst and concern and question among the Jews who weren't believing in Christ yet. They had to wrestle through these things. What do you mean the ministry of the law is, in a sense, done away with, faded, gone, non-glorious? We're talking about the commands of God given to Moses. What are you saying? There's no glory there. And then now something else exists and remains and is even more, much more in glory. And that, that, yet that is exactly the, the difference between the Old Testament and the New. Not that the Old is no longer needed or serves no purpose, but that it is no longer the glory. The purpose has moved on. The purpose is focusing somewhere else. Verse 12, Therefore, we learn to recognize that word for the spotlight of application that it really is, the effect that it should have. Every time we see a therefore or a so that or a for this reason, we need to turn up our attention and listen all the more carefully. There is a consequence, a purpose, an effect that comes out of the more glorious truth Paul is speaking of. This is why the prior truths are so important and relevant to us. Paul says, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Second Corinthians is such a powerhouse lesson on true confidence. Why is Paul not backing down from the accusations? 
Why is he not thrown off track by the lies about him and the message? Why is he not intimidated or discouraged? On the contrary, why is he growing stronger, more bold, more authoritative? How is it that he looks his opponents in the eye with such confidence and speaks with such boldness and plainness, such simplicity, such clarity? The answer is the gospel. This new covenant from God. The Holy Spirit that empowers it all in us. It's because of the Savior who perfectly accomplished this once and for all. The Almighty who guarantees it. Paul was so sure of the value of the gospel for him and for all people the effectiveness of the ministry of the new covenant, the more glorious work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person that he could not be deflated or defeated by his afflictions or by his accusers. He said, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. The application question that immediately springs from the text is this. Do you and I have such a hope? Can we say, I know what Paul's talking about. I have experienced that. That hope is the power and the truth that drives my life day after day after day. And Paul is not just referring to the general sense of hope as we might casually use it. The phrase says, having such hope. A hope. That such refers back to what was just said, the specific and defined hope given in the prior verses, and it will continue to be given in the next few verses we'll see, and that is the supreme glory of the life-changing message of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. Paul says we are so much better off now. That's why we're confident. Friend, can you and I say... I am so much better off now that I know Christ. I have that same empowering hope. I know that no whatever, whatever may come my way in this life, the gospel will be strong in me. The Spirit will be alive and God will carry me through. It breaks my heart, and I know it does many of yours as well, to see Christians who look at life and conclude, I was better off before. I'm hardly any better off now than I used to be. Their eye looks across the valley into the world and longs for it. That only happens to people who have not truly experienced the better, more glorious hope of salvation. I've tragically seen even a few people in our church family who have walked away from their faith. They have slid back into the world. They have fallen into sin. And my heart hurts for them. Why? Why would they trade this for that 
Surely it's because they never had such a hope. Or at best, they walked away from the word and they forgot the invaluable hope they had so freely given to them, so assuredly given to them. And because of that, they also lost their boldness and clarity of speech when it comes to the things of God. And because of that, they were afraid to speak for Christ. They didn't know what to say. So much so, they eventually didn't even know what to say to themselves. They couldn't even convince themselves of the truth and the value of the more glorious hope. I have a friend going through life-threatening illness right now. Three days ago, she posted this on social media. Be careful how you talk to yourself because you are listening. That's biblical wisdom. It is the mind that is stayed on Christ, that is fixed on Christ, on such a hope that finds perfect peace. Isaiah 26.3 The person who doesn't have such a hope eventually becomes enamored with and convinced of the myths that Paul warned of in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that we read a couple weeks ago. Myths that satisfy their own desires, their worldly sinful desires. Paul warned us in verses 3 and 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Such a hope, a specific hope. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You know why we humbly strive to teach sound doctrine in this church? It's because it's the key to true hope, to true boldness and faithfulness for Christ especially in the storms of life. Power is found and experienced when one taps into the glory of the gospel versus the faded glory of the law, the rules, the list of do's and don'ts that will never save you. Ponder that again. The commandments only convict us. They condemn us. They prove our guilt. On the other hand, Christ forgives. He gives hope. He frees, as we're going to see in the word in the next few verses. He liberates. It's not because God is an unjust God. It's because Jesus paid the penalty of the sin we were fully convicted of by the law. It's because the gospel is so glorious, so wonderful beyond anything else this world has to offer that we have such great hope and boldness. Friend, in your most honest and best assessment of yourself, perhaps you would say, I don't have that kind of hope. 
I've been searching for it. I've even dabbled in the church a little. But I don't have that kind of, not if I'm honest, I don't have that kind of hope. But I'm beginning to see that such a hope can be found in the Lord. And I want that. Maybe your heart is saying, I want Christ. I want that kind of confident, freeing, liberating truth that I'm reading about in Scripture. If that's you, look at what Paul says between here and the end of the chapter. He goes on to teach in verse 13. We use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Read Exodus chapters 32 through 34. Read this account. The amazing account of Moses going up and coming down off of Mount Sinai after God gave him the Ten Commandments. This is the account of the golden calf, of Moses smashing the tablets, getting the second set from God. The account of his face shining with glory when he came back off the mountain. I'm telling you, once you start reading it, you will get sucked into the text. Moses' face glowing somehow, so glorious. It's interesting. The people were afraid to look at him. The glory on the mountain was so severe, they asked, they said, Moses, don't let God talk to us. You talk to him and you talk to us. They were afraid even of the voice of God. The glory was so magnificent. I'll tell you, Moses' face is one of those video replays I look forward to seeing in heaven. And imagine this sight. How interesting that Paul says, Moses covered his face so the people would not see the end of the glory that was fading away. There was something diminishing about that glory, something obscure, something unclear and fading. And Paul is likening that to the very purpose of the message and the strength of the message that Moses brought down the mountain from God, the Ten Commandments. Those tablets were not the end of the story. There was no victory, ultimate, eternal victory to be found in the law that condemned them. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened, speaking of the people of Israel, for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Here's the analogy. Because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Those last few words have got to be some of the most spiritually enlightening and empowering words ever spoken. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Not a literal veil, a spiritual veil. And what is that veil covering? It is covering the human mind and the heart. Verses 14 and 15. Paul says, to this very day, the Jews still don't understand the Old Testament. The Torah in particular. The law, the commands. The veil still rests over their eyes. They are still spiritually blind. 
to both the truth of the Old Testament and the New. Their mind is hardened. Their heart cannot even respond. Why? Because only Christ can remove the veil. Paul then gives those life-giving, mind-opening, heart-beating words. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. I don't know whether to cheer or cry tears of joy when I ponder those words. If you've experienced the eye-opening, life-changing, life-giving work of Christ when you believed on Him, then you know what Paul is talking about here. You know what we're studying. John Newton understood this when he penned the words, I once was lost, lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Christ removed my veil. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Notice the verse doesn't say, when a person understands, the veil falls off. Or when a person finally figures out God, then they'll understand and see spiritual truths. No. What is the key? What does the verse specifically say unlocks spiritual life and understanding? When a person turns to the Lord, then the veil is taken away. There's so much spiritual guidance in these words of Scripture. We would do well to know what it means to turn to the Lord. Let us not overcomplicate Christianity. It means turn to the Lord. And I'll bet every person here has a general pretty good sense of what that means. It means to turn away from everything else, from self-sufficiency, from self-truth, away from all the other gods, religions, philosophies, wisdoms of this world. It's a complete change of direction toward God, a turning of the heart, the soul, the mind, the strength to change the direction of one's eyes, the directions of one's thoughts, the direction of one's walk, and to just turn it all to the Lord. This is the concept of repentance, to change complete direction. Jesus himself said in Mark 1.14, the time is fulfilled. He's speaking of the difference between the old and the new. It is happening now. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, the word of God. You know what happens when a person believes but does not repent? You don't want to know. Sadly, in contrast to the crystal clear instruction given here in Scripture and all throughout the Word, many people are largely turned toward the world and trying to figure out God. It does not work that way. It will never work that way. It cannot work that way for you and me. Even Christians can trip up in a sense with that same faulty thinking and behavior. That turning to the Lord is what we could easily call the leap of faith. It's not a blind leap. It is a Holy Spirit-empowered leap. 
a word of God perfectly guided leap. When we turn to the Lord and search the word and humble ourselves before him and pray and seek after him as for hid treasure, then the veil is taken away. Then we discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God, as we read recently in Proverbs chapter 2. We're again looking at the posture of the heart. Pride, on the other hand, turns from God, perhaps not realizing that God resists the proud. That is a terrifying thought, to be resisted, to be opposed, to be the opponent of Almighty God. Proverbs 3.35 says, He scoffs the scoffers. James 4.6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The turn toward God is a humble turn. The next verse in James 5 says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. All of those things, hear me, all of these things point to the responsibility of man to turn to the Lord. And all the Calvinists said, kind of forgot about those verses. No, that's not what they said. They said, only by the grace of God. And what did the Armenians say? Yeah, that's what we meant. If only it was that simple. Maybe it is. Let us not overcomplicate the word of God. For heaven's sake, turn to the Lord. And the veil will be taken away. Submit. Draw near to him. God will open your eyes. He will forgive your sins. Heal your eternal wounds. He will adopt you into his family. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will prepare a place in heaven for you. He will save and guarantee an inheritance for you. And so much more when we repent and believe in the gospel. The ultimate much, much more is he will be glorified like he deserves and will be glorified. Christian friends, can you see why Paul has such a great hope? Can you see where he found the boldness in his Christian living, in his speech, in his conduct? It wasn't his personality. It wasn't his daredevil, I can do this. I'm going to be all I can be for God. Name it, claim it attitude. Paul learned what it meant to turn to the Lord. And the grace of God instantly changed him. And the grace of God continued changing him, daily growing in sanctification. Let us not forget, even the apostle Paul was a saved sinner who daily was desperate for the grace of God the mercy of God, the guidance of God. It's another one of those things I look forward to learning about in heaven. Lord, we see all of these incredible teachings given by the Spirit through Paul in the words of Scripture, but tell us about the mistakes he kept making too, the sins he committed, the, the times of weakness he did have, 
and even some of those are revealed here, we will see that even Paul needed such a hope. He was not a strong, mighty, noble, wealthy man. He was one of the first to point out God doesn't choose those people. He uses those who are weak before him, those who are poor in spirit, etc. The grace of God continued to change Paul as well. We Christians who have had the privilege of knowing God for decades sometimes hit very difficult times and seasons in life and we forget that the power of God is always within reach. The glory of God is always within view. Perhaps we don't see God at times because we've turned away from Him. The truth is, He's still there. Perhaps in a sense, He's just standing behind us. It's not He who has turned. He didn't move. Even believers, especially believers, need to remember that a fresh, daily, passionate turn to the Lord yields daily grace, just like it did saving grace. Not re-saving grace, but a repowering grace. There is no substitute for us as a people of God for honest, submissive time in the Word of God. Meaningful prayer communion with God. Faith-building fellowship with the saints. The grace of God is alive and well, and well, especially in those who turn to the Lord. Not just toward Him, but to Him, as this phrase says. In the English, that can be a very big difference. If I'm thinking it through correctly, I am turned toward New York City right now, but I am not to it. Submit and draw near to God. Turn to the Lord. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. This is undoubtedly Paul confirming that the Lord Jesus Christ, who many of them may have seen, at least heard about, even as he walked to the earth, as Jesus walked the earth, Paul's confirming that is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Redeemer, who is the Spirit who ministers the new covenant, the gospel in us. This is theology at work here. The Spirit of God. This is the Spirit of God referred to back in verse 8. This is a tremendous affirmation of the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead being one, Jesus being God the Son of God, the person of God, not just a good man, not just an amazing teacher, not even just a miracle worker. He was God. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Not death, not condemnation, not subjects of the law. Instead, in a far more glorious way, there is liberty. True, spiritual, eternal freedom and justification in Christ. Romans chapter 8, 1 to 4 says, 
Therefore, makes you want to go see what Romans 7 said. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We understand these are two laws at play. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Think about that. God did. Those are two of the most powerful words in Scripture. Two of the most revealing words in Scripture. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, give it in our best, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 1 through 4. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Such a hope. Verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and freeze right there. That, again, has got to be one of the most inspiring realities in Scripture. That is Paul saying, we, with eyes wide open, with minds understanding, look into the mirror, and what do we see? We see Christ. The glory of the Lord in the mirror. The glory of the new covenant. The glory of our salvation. The glory of the imputed righteousness of Christ Himself upon us. We don't see self in this spiritual mirror. We see the glory of the Lord standing there, resting upon us, Christ in us. That is what a person sees when the veil has been taken away. They see the truth and the reality of the glorious gospel of Christ in them. Therefore, we have such a hope. Now, some of your translations, such as the ESV, may not have the phrase in a mirror in the text. Recognize, it just says, beholding the glory of the Lord. They are both ultimately saying the exact same thing. With unveiled face, we see Christ the glory of our Savior. That's the bottom line. Christ in the new covenant. Christ being pointed to in the old covenant. Christ in us. Christ is the Spirit. We see the glory of Christ. Paul is not only teaching this young Corinthian church the doctrine of of the new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the miracle of salvation, he is reminding them of who they are in Christ. Let us remember that Christianity is not about facts. It is about facts in us. It is about life change. It is about spiritual power. It is about God. 
when we realize and see afresh who we are when we look into the spiritual mirror of the Word of God, then we find great hope. Then we find self-worth. It's where we find boldness and confidence and all of these spiritual blessings that Paul has passionately and so patiently been teaching these young believers. And praise God, Paul didn't say at the start of verse 18, but I, with unveiled face. No, he said, but we. Who is the we? The we is me, the suffering and afflicted apostle, and you, the young, immature believers. The, in, this incredible spectrum of believers at various points in their understanding of God, he says, we, all of us in Christ, look in the mirror and see the glory of the Lord. Such a hope. When I get up in the morning and look into the spiritual mirror, to be honest with you, I tend to look at my failures. I tend to look at the circumstances that are all surrounding me in that mirror. As a dad, as a husband, as a Christian, I see failures. I see shortcomings. But Paul reminds us, it was not our success with the law in the first place that earned us the glory of the Lord. I could just hear Paul saying, don't go there, brother. It was Christ in the new covenant who did and who does and who will do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. He opens your eyes and he takes the veil away. We see Christ. Paul goes on to say, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. From one level of glory to an increasing level of glory. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I haven't seen the best there is. I'm grateful for the salvation of grace and grace of God, the mercy of God that I see being poured out in my life and yours. But there's a greater glory even yet to come. The fulfillment of our salvation, the realization of our salvation, the end of our salvation when we stand with God in heaven. There's this glory of the old covenant that has moved to the glory of the new, from the fading glory to the remaining glory, from the lesser to the greater, from the deathly to the living, from the condemning to the liberating. And it is the spirit of the living God who does this transformation. This is why we have hope. This is why we are bold. Not just toward people, but there's this boldness that God gives us toward life. Bold in the face of the unknown. Bold in the face of my financial difficulties. Bold in the face of my health woes. Bold in the sorrows. Bold in the joys. Bold in the blessings. 
because we have such a hope. I am so encouraged as I study these words of life. In a sense, I hear Paul saying, look in the mirror, brother. Christ is in you. You are a free man. The glory of God rests upon you. Go, and because of what he has done, be of good courage. Be confident in Christ. Be humble because of Christ. Celebrate your freedom. If Paul lived today, we can almost hear him say, forget transformers. I've got a transformer that will blow your mind right into heaven. He's called the Spirit of the living God. And he is transforming people from glory to to glory. What a dynamite passage of Scripture. And what was the application meet right in the middle of the sandwich here? Verse 12. Therefore, do we understand the therefore? Having such a hope, do we understand the such? We use great boldness in our speech. If you don't have that hope, turn to the Lord and find Him today come speak with me or Pastor Mark or anyone here and we will show you the same verses that we read that changed our lives that helped us to understand sin and forgiveness hell and heaven eternal life mercy justification why there had to be a cross and a resurrection I urge you turn to the Lord And Christian friend, if you do have that hope, but you feel perhaps like you've lost some of your confidence in Christ and you've lost some of your boldness for Christ, my encouragement for you is simple. What is it? Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord again and again and again. Confess sin. Do what's right. Believe what God says. Know you have been forgiven. Know that the glory of your Savior rests upon you. Take a good long look in the mirror each day and be healed. Be strengthened. Friend, let us live this Christian life in the confidence and the humble, loving boldness that is rightly ours. When we look in the mirror and see Christ, It doesn't stop there. Paul says, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness. When you find your confidence in Christ, it's time to go and serve. Go and share. It's high time for Christians to take that bold stand for Christ, to speak the truth, to go and make disciples, to fear not what man can do to them. And man can do some things but they can't touch the soul. No weak ambassadors, right? When the Spirit of the Lord transform a person into the same image from glory to glory, they find real power. Chapter 4, verse 1 again. Looking at the next chapter, it says, Therefore, as we study through this book, you're going to see Paul is just stacking these therefores. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. 
Next week, Lord willing, I look forward to diving into a two-week study with you titled, Never Give Up. Paul says here in chapter 3, we press on. And in the next chapter, he says, and we keep pressing on by the grace of God, for the glory of God. That's what we do. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of eternal life, the words of truth, the words of power. But we recognize it's not just the words. These are Christ. You are the word. You are truth. So Lord, today what we pray for is you. If there is one here who does not know you as their savior, their friend, their Lord and King, I pray that they would turn to the Lord today in all its simplicity, that they repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the word of God. Start reading it like their lives depend upon it. And Lord, for those of us who have found such a hope, Lord, help us not to fail to be in the word so that we can realize such the hope we have. How great it is, how marvelous it is, how confident and steady it is, how assured it is, how powerful it is, how much greater and how much glorious it is. We don't want to wait till we get to heaven to realize all the wonder of the glory of the gospel in us. Lord, show us more. Fill us with more. Give us the power of the Holy Spirit to be good ambassadors for you. Not afraid to share the gospel. Not afraid to go and make a disciple. It's for your glory we pray all these things. And in Jesus' name, amen.